Welcome to the Pastured Pig Podcast, where we share the successes and challenges of raising pigs on pasture. We talk to producers all over the country, from small homesteads to large commercial pasture operations. Whether you're new to pastured pigs or have been raising hogs for decades, we hope you hear new ideas and new perspectives on pasturing hogs. Here's your host, Troy McClung. Well, hello, everybody. Welcome to the inaugural episode of the Pastured Pig Podcast. I'm your host, Troy McClung. And I wanted to start this podcast simply because I love raising pigs on pasture. I enjoy talking to others about their experiences. And I'm excited for the opportunity to learn more about pasturing pigs from those whom I interview. There are already some great podcasts in the podcast universe that touch upon this subject from time to time. But I wanted to create one with a primary purpose of talking about pigs on pasture. We'll save the cows, goats, sheep, and other grazers for other podcasts to handle. We're going to stick with a pig. Well, I want to discuss quickly the purpose of this podcast. Uh, Number one, it's going to focus exclusively on the topic of raising pigs on pasture. Number two, we want to raise awareness of the benefits and challenges of pasturing pigs. Number three, we want to introduce producers all across the country and world, maybe, uh, from small personal herds to large-scale production operations. Number four, we want to discuss key topics, tips, and experiences with people raising pastured pigs. Some of the details of the podcast, we want our format to be an hour or less and will primarily be interview style. We will ask pig farmers to share their setups, their experiences, and anything they've run into raising pastured pigs. Some podcasts will also be topical and address specific concerns and issues that arise with pastured pigs. Well, before we start with our first interview, I felt I should take a brief moment to give some background as to who I am and my experiences with pastured pigs. My wife Kelly and I live in southern West Virginia in the foothills of the Appalachian Mountains. We have a rural 100-acre farm where we live with our two teenage boys. We do have a YouTube channel called Red Toolhouse Homestead that focuses on the broader topic of homesteading and small farming. We've been raising pastured pigs... um, for about six years now, and when I say pasture, it's kind of a woodlot pasture. We're in, again in the Appalachian Mountains. We don't have flat pasture. We have hillside uh, covered in Appalachian hardwood. We currently have Duroc and Hampshire cross breeds that we're playing with, and we have about six acres right now that are pastured uh, woodlot that our, our pigs have access to. We do engage in AI. Uh, we don't have any boars on farm. And during our peak times, we may have as many as 20 pigs on pasture to finish. Not a huge operation. Uh, Some of the people we've interviewed already, uh, it's exciting to see how large these operations are and still being able to stay on uh, on pasture. And we'll we'll be getting into those in future episodes. We offer private sales of whole and half hogs as well as individual cuts to our local customers through a basic delivery route system. And we will get into that at this point. It'll probably come out as we talk about uh, uh, how other uh, pig farmers integrate their sales with delivery and other options. As episodes progress, we will offer up more details on our farm, answer any questions that may come our way, and include pertinent updates from time to time. We really want to focus on our guests during the podcast. So our first guest is a gentleman by the name of Brian Rogers, and Brian has Berkshire Prime Pork in Arkansas. And what a, he's got a great story. I love this as, as one of our first interviews. It was exciting to get into. So he was um, about three and a half years ago, he started with pigs uh, by driving uh, multiple hours to buy one bread sow. And fast forward uh, three and a half years later, and he ha- now has over 30 breeders on two separate farm properties. So I won't give any more of that away. I'll let Brian tell a story. So we'll jump right into that interview now. All right. Well, I'm excited today to have Brian Rogers on our podcast. And Brian is uh, with Berkshire Prime Pork. And he has, uh, he's got a, a pretty cool operation from, from what I've uh, discovered so far. And really anxious to talk to him. He's, um, he's in Arkansas as his, his home base. And I'm really excited to have him on the podcast. Welcome, Brian, to, a, uh, to our podcast today. Thank you, Troy. Thank you very much. I appreciate the opportunity. Excellent. Excellent. So uh, uh, as, as a little icebreaker, what, uh, what transpired on the farm today? What was, a, what was a farm chore that you had to get done? Or what was the, the day in the life of, of Brian Rogers on the farm? Today we had, uh, oh, I, I went down to my lower field and we had four sows that were coming into heat. And so I had to take a, 
it's about a 450 pound boar and I got my I got three of my daughters my 11 year old my eight year old and my six year old and they each got their own stick and we got the boar out of his pen up in the upper field and it was about good 600 feet at least 800 feet somewhere in there I don't measure it but so they they helped me assist and walk the boar down and it was a little interesting he didn't exactly want to go where we wanted him to but uh, we got him in a containment pen, and then we moved the sows. We moved two of the sows into that pen. Obviously, I'm not going to have him service three at a time, so we we, we gave him two companions for the day. And uh, so my little sidekicks, they were just they were awesome, and they did their chore to the T. Excellent, excellent. That sounds like a good day. So hopefully that uh, that'll take and get some good results from there. Well, I appreciate that. Let's let's start with um, let's do an overview of of your farm. So, uh, tell me a little bit about your, about your farm, where you're at, uh, uh, just some details there, and maybe some uh, some of your background in uh, raising pigs on pasture. Yes. Um, well, realistically, my background it all started with one sow, and that was about three and a half years ago. And uh, I drove about five hours one way, picked her up. She was already pregnant. As soon as her piglets hit the ground. I was just excited as can be, and I bought three more bred sows at that moment, probably a, a week or two after those hit the ground, and uh, had about 30, 35 piglets somewhere in there, and uh, it just, it really took off. It, it it changed my viewpoint of pigs, and it, it all became positive instead of some negative connotations that had been in, it kind of absorbed through society, and I really love where we're headed now you know we went from one sow to four now i'm sitting at about 30 33 i don't really i don't count every one of them because they may not work out as all breeders but uh we separate them i've got two separate farms about an hour apart and uh it really helps with just disease protection and 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 really securing your harvest uh, you, you never want to lose all your eggs out of one basket so we, we separate those. We separated our boars. We went all Berkshire at very first because uh, it was a marketing. Yeah, I mean, it really works. It's good stuff. It's good pork. Um, we worked through three bad bloodlines that just didn't fare well or they had real light-colored loins, but we really stuck with two good bloodlines, and uh, we got real good positive results from customers off of those. And so we've multiplied that breeding herd probably times three on each sow. So I, so instead of six sows, I now have 18 Berkshire sows. And then uh, we came in with some Durox just recently, and that's going to really add a big change into our meat program. Uh, the Berkshire is really known for some good dark color and juiciness, and we're after that Durox marbling. And um, in the near future, we're going to start adding a good surprise or two. We're going to probably throw in a third breed and gain just a touch more heterosis and a couple of other positive aspects. Um, it's It's been a really good journey so far, and uh, I'm sure I've got plenty to talk about today. <laughs> oh, man, yeah. Wow, there's a lot to unpack there. Um, so something that really jumps out to me in what you said. So uh, started with one sow, immediately moved up to four. And and you're so you're about three and a half years to four years into this gig, yes. Okay, so so I, and I know what a lot of people are going to be thinking because I'm thinking it as well. Is, man, where did you get the experience? It did did you, just something you just run and gun, just learn it as you go. Did you have some? Did you oh. have some mentors? Did you have some good help there? I had some ultimately awesome mentors. I mean. Um, I don't know if any one of them want me to put them out on the line. You know, I'll, I'll, I'll do them all a favor and just keep them nameless at this moment. But um, uh, I, I seek out the top producers in the United States, literally. And um, my first, my first, my best sal uh, really came from Al Christian up at Iowa State. I'll go ahead and I'll say his name because he was my very first influence. And so he was kind of the person that touched my direction first. And uh, so I, I got to visit with him and learn quite a bit of stuff from him. And I moved onward, and, and, and I stayed in touch with Al, but um, I moved onward, and there's a couple of other producers that I really contacted. I had a 5,000 sow producer up in Minnesota, and 
probably a three to five thousand producer or sow producer in Iowa and um I've met some really good farmers um that are older than me that I really wanted to focus on people who had really good experience and I, I never want to discredit any, anybody I never want to um I'm not here to speak bad about anything really I mean they took me under their wing and taught me and taught me and taught me and my veterinarian, uh, she works for Merck, and she's an amazing, amazing part of my program. Um, gosh, she's she's given me, I have to say, she's given me so many free services, and she, she sees like 20 million hogs a year, and she comes out to my farm, and she'll look, she'll look up in the trees, because I live in the mountains, and she'll look up in the trees, and she goes, this is where it starts at. She goes, without you... We don't have producers. We don't have tomorrow's producers. So you may you may own a, a big sow house one day, but right now with your three sows, because she came in in the very beginning, and uh, actually it was four four sows, and so we did blood tests and we we did screenings for diseases to get a baseline. No, I was I was clear on everything except ileitis, and that's pretty much in every herd in America. Um, we, that's why you vaccinate for it in piglet age. Um, but just she'd answer any questions I'd have. Um, I could text her late at night with a sow farrowing issues, and occasionally she'd bill me for that stuff. But that's that's all due. I mean, I, I have to pay my way. But uh, so between my veterinarian just really keeping me by her side, and uh, these really large producers teaching me bloodlines in the Berkshire industry and proper genetics, proper structure for for meat quality. Um, and I guess I have to take a step back and say that besides my first four sows, I really got focused on show pigs in the beginning because of my daughter. And so I learned the show pig way before I learned the meat industry um, concepts and, and values and structure. And so I've got an eye for both of those industries. And I just really feel like that puts me in a position to not necessarily to step in the ring and judge other people's pigs, but for me to step into a herd and pick out what's going to survive and breed and really do well in my sector, in my field, we have trillions of rocks out here. I swear the big bang happened right here. <laughs> so, so, so good feet, good legs. I mean, it's imperative from the ground up that I was taught. That's where the structure comes from is from the ground up. And, uh, that, that's really, you know, that's my beginning and so far my end. That's That kind of sums up where all my knowledge and info comes from, just besides all the forums and stuff that you get. I mean, I'm a part of so many forums, pastured forums, show pig forums, and um, it's just been a really great source of knowledge to get. And occasionally you get information that isn't true. We always have to weed through that. But uh, a lot of people shine through with really good information. Man, that's great. What a, uh, There's a lot there in that statement as well. So yeah, I, I think there's some of us that I know, I know I'm one of those guys that is, is very envious of the um, the access you have to uh, to those resources, a good veterinarian that, that knows pigs and not just as a typical large animal vet, um, having access to uh, those resources in the uh, universities and, and some of these, these larger growers. Uh, I guess being in Arkansas, yeah, that kind of puts you in in that uh, pig belt there and allows you to have access to that. But man, uh, what a great opportunity to, to really dive into that head first. It sounds like you've really done your homework there. Well, thank you. Um, I, I do my best and that's all I can do. Um, in the access to the veterinarian is, it's been amazing because like you said, not many people have access to a swine veterinarian, especially I'm an hour and a half from the big cities. Um, I'm 30 minutes from a city of 10,000. So, actually, no, I'm sorry. That's probably 30,000. That's Hot Springs, Arkansas. So uh, it's it's been unique and amazing. And, and it's also helped a lot of my pig friend connections that are small-timers here in Arkansas because they don't have an outlet. They don't have a veterinarian. And so I'm able to refer them out. And even if it's just sharing the advice my veterinarian's already shared with me, um, I can reference all my texts and stuff that, Gosh, I just get so much advice. It's just been wonderful. All right, good deal, man. All right, well, let's um, 
let's shift gears here a little bit and let's talk about your setup. You had mentioned having two farms that uh, that you use for uh, obviously rotational process or, or, or separating uh, to to have some biosecurity there. Um, what is your setup with with those two farms? How many acres are we talking about? What's your confinement process? Are you using electric rotational process? Uh, tell us a little bit about that. Yes. Um, well, here on my home farm, uh, I've got uh, 18, 20 sows. Like I said, I don't count them all. <laughs> but uh, it's primarily a farrowing facility here, and I don't have any farrowing crates or barns or stalls or anything of that nature. So when a sow comes to farrow and she's two or three days from, I, I build a big corral pen. Uh, it's usually 36 by 36 or or or. 20 by 20 if I don't have, an, or 16 by 16 if I don't have enough materials. But if I have eight sows farrowing at once, goodness sakes, I run out of panels. But uh, so I, I build them on clean ground, fresh ground typically, and they get a tarp, they get a windbreak, they get a little creep area with two by fours that go through the through the fence posts, and it sections off a little corner and. Unless it's just the dead of summer, uh, I always provide them a heat lamp if possible because it just draws the babies away from mom. And it, whether the mom's an all-star or not, that heat lamp really it just helps, even even if the mom's a great mom. Um, I have some awesome moms, and I have some moms that just didn't turn out real well, and that's just one of those learning pains. Um, it hurts the pocketbook. It hurts the heart. But... uh it's it's something we've weeded through. We've really get we're really getting probably weaning now eighty to ninety percent of the piglets that we farrow. Hmm, and that's a great uh, percentage. so we get so we get fresh plots, fresh ground. They're all protected. Um, the piglets have access to get out of the pens by themselves, pretty much from two weeks old, three weeks old. We allow them out, but the mom stays in the pen. So the babies get to wander, the babies get to forage, and they get to think for themselves. They get to really work on that naturalistic instinct. And they always go back to their mama. Um, we got eight, nine, nine acres here on the home farm. So it's not a lot of acreage, but we use every bit of it and move it around. Um, we keep the pigs off of the garden area as best as possible, but the garden hasn't been used in the last year and a half. But, uh, we, we will rotate piglets in rough spots in the garden just to thin out stuff. A lot of it's forested. Some of it's grassland. About two and a half acres is grassland, and the rest is all forest. So uh, and 90% of it is rock. <laughs> but, <laughs> right. But, uh, yeah. So then we go to the other farm. It's about an hour away, and it's, I have access to about 30 acres of the 100 at this point. I don't really need all that access, but that's where a lot of my growers go. Um, most of my growers, especially once they get 50, 60 pounds, they all go out to that one place. And, uh, and then we've also got another 16 to 18 mamas out there and two, three boars out there and three boars here on this home farm. And uh, it's just, it really separates the biosecurity, like you said, and uh, I'm out there almost every day, every other day, and I have a really good friend that is a caretaker whenever they're farrowing and I'm not able to be there. So it, it's tougher. I don't like to have them separated. I wish they were all on my home farm or my home My home was at the other farm that's a little bigger. But we're, we're making do and we're doing good, and we're, we've got some big changes coming. So we're, we're hoping to probably double our sow production even again. Um, in the next two or three years, and we're going to add a third breed, and we're going to start working on a few things. It'll be really neat, really neat to see. Excellent. Well, you said something there that, that triggered another question is, uh, tell me about infrastructure. You mentioned you really don't have, um, you don't have farrowing stalls. Excuse me. <clears throat> Hate it when that happens. You don't have farrowing stalls. You don't do farrowing crates. Uh, you even mentioned uh, no barns. Do you, do you have infrastructure at um, any buildings? Any infrastructure like that at all at e- either of the two farms? Uh, on the second farm, yes, it makes it a lot easier. Um, there's a barn, and we allow farrowing stalls. There are no crates, but they're they're pretty much fifteen by fifteen. Some of them are ten by twenty, longer than they are wide, um, but. And those have open ends that go out into the pasture for the babies. 
but uh here on the home farm i don't have any barns i've got a shop that i've just recently started using a little bit for a couple of sows here and there and they they get their own farrowing stalls once again but 90 percent even more than that uh farrow out on the ground outside under a tarp and i know some people don't even provide that out in the, the pastured world but I just, I just have, in a sense, I just feel like I have to provide them a tarp. That's just me. Um, but uh, they, they do really well out there, um, except for whenever we have torrential rains, and then you'll find me out there the next two or three days moving pins. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know what so. that's like. So, do you have uh, so in that situation? Do do you fare all year long, or do you have a cutoff point where you don't fare through the winter? Yes, we don't mind farrowing through the entire winter. It's the summer I dislike. Um, I have found that I lose, if I lose piglets or if I was to have a catastrophe of a situation, it would be in the heat of summer when the babies don't want a heat lamp or they they just want to be under mom's side. And some mamas, I have some exceptional mamas that have never squished a piglet ever. And so you really hold on to those genetics and multiply them. So. If I've ever had an issue, it's it's either been weeded out or it's on its way out. And uh, so so I may have a different opinion in a year or two on summertime farrowing. But in the winter, they they, mag, they just draw in like a magnet to the heat lamp. Or uh, occasionally you'll get one that likes to tuck under mama's shoulders, and that doesn't end well. But uh, I find that that's just the genetics weeding themselves out. Maybe that piglet wasn't intelligent. Maybe that piglet had an issue. Maybe... There's something that drew that piglet in to be like mom, be under mom, and so process of nature's way of elimination that won't be repeated, hopefully. But uh, but but no, we uh, we don't have barns out here, and um, so so wintertime farrowing, you know, we we get snow, we only get two or three inches at a time, or the worst I've ever seen is five or six inches. So they do really well out here in the wintertime farrowing. Okay, very good. Well, um, so what about uh, your pasture confinement? Are you, are you using electric? Are you using panel? Are you using uh, uh, woven wire? What, what do you, how are you keeping them in uh, where you need to keep them? We have pigs that like to stay in their pen, and we have pigs that don't like to stay in their pen. <laughs> so um, some of them, like some of our boars and some of our durocs, they are really good with one strand of wire. Um, most of them get two strands of wire and then there's some that get three strands of wire. Uh, so very rarely do I have a group that needs three strands and it's just one or two consistent pigs that just continue to get out time after time after time. They'll just jump. Well, they're Berkshires and they'll just jump the wire. They're, I I consider a Berkshire like a dog. They bark, they jump, they, (laughs) they do so many so many behavioral things that a dog does and uh so the third wire is usually for the group that has a jumping issue and uh i have two sows that just don't like to stay in the pen so occasionally they run free on the farm and they literally they stay in my yard they eat grass they they eat in the woods and they sleep on the porch or they have to go to a hard panel pen that there's no containing two of my sows it they're either in a hard panel pen or they're free and occasionally they'll get 200 feet away from the house, maybe 300 feet in one direction. But once they reach that limit, I have to reset them and they go to a hard panel pen for two or three or four days and it resets their behavior. It's really strange, but they go to that pen and then, then they stay next to the house. And then a month later, you'll see them 300 feet away, maybe 400 feet away at most. And it's like, okay, Time to reset that again. But, uh, it's, and they're some of my best mamas, so I, I, golly, I just can't weed them out of the herd. Yeah, yeah, that's some of those things that you, um, you take the pros and the cons there. It, the pigs are fascinating. It is amazing how, uh, intelligent they are and how much personality they have. Uh, you know, same way. We have some that would want to sleep on the front porch if I gave them the opportunity. There's nothing like a 600-pound sow laying on the front porch of the house. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah, definitely. It's better. And they're harmless from the perspective like an attack dog, but they're they're more they're more uh, uh, 
influential than a, than an attack dog like a pit like a no, I shouldn't say a pit because there's some really nice ones out there. But uh, a, a real mean dog, you know. You see a pig on the porch and you're a stranger, you're gonna go. I don't know if I should do that. And then you step on the porch and they bark at you like a dog does, and you're gonna leave. <laughs> yeah, that's but, definitely uh, intimidating. We'll, we'll knock on the front window. <laughs> but uh, so so yeah, I, I love to wake up in the morning and see couple of my sows sleeping on the porch i'll go out and i'll and i keep some hay on the porch even because it's a it's a dirt floor carport basically and uh i'll go out and i'll sit with them for a few minutes and just just enjoy the cool morning air or something good deal uh, well let's let's talk about uh some of your feed Uh, again reading on your site sounds like you've got a um, uh, a good lead on some some good non-gmo feed but you're also incorporating some other elements into that can you share a little bit with us there Yes, um, so we have a section of growers that we do non-GMO feed on still. At one point, we were 100% sows, piglets, growers, boars. Everybody got non-GMO feed, and it's such a drive for me. I have to drive at least Harrison, Arkansas, or Fayetteville, which is three and a half to four hours one way, just to pick up three tons of feed and bring it back to the farm, and with 33 sows, you reach a breaking point where you have to decide if time or resources is more valuable. And uh, when you're on the farm working 30, 33 sows, and you're driving to another farm just for biosecurity reasons and safety reasons, and you have five children, it's time to reevaluate some of that. And so the boars, the sows, and the young piglets do not get the non-GMO feed at this point. But once they're weaned, and they go to the field, that field is non-GMO, and we still do a drive, and we still get three tons of feed at a time, and the rest of the stuff comes locally. Um, Josh, I've weeded my way through so many ingredients, and we've really relied on Iowa State to provide us some really good formulas, and um, probably the pork checkoff, or uh, gosh, I can't remember what website it is at the moment, Um there's, a, there's several good websites that have lists, a plethora of different ingredients and formulas you can use. It's like a flow chart, and you just give and take and give and take, and you find the find the exact percentages you want and need. And It's kind of hard here in cattle country. I'm sure there's some people that listen, and they're like, we don't live where there's pig feed mills. And so I have to work at times. I don't have all of my pre-mixes for my ingredient, uh, the minerals and stuff. And so I'm, I may have to use a range mineral that's meant for grass-fed cattle out in the pasture instead of a specific swine mineral mix, um, which is fine. Um, it's a lot better than not giving them any mineral. Um, it's not a huge out-of-balance. I've compared formulas and everything. And so we'll we'll also send in like our primary formula. We sent it into the University of Arkansas and allowed them to run um, their data on it. And then once we got our first feedback, we'd send in samples and get real data on the actual feed at what it what it comes out at because every corn is different, every field of corn is different. So even if you have the same distributor, the the same field will you'll never get the same corn from the same field twice. Um, and, and I'll, I'll also save batches of corn. So in one batch, I'll save a little bag that has three or four scoops, and I'll put it in the deep freezer. And I just I do that every time I make a trip of three to five tons. And so I bet I got 50 samples. If I ever needed it, I can use it. I can pull it out and sample if I had an issue with the feed or if I had something going on. So, for example, recently we had some sows that kept recycling for about a month like what's going on here and so we disease test and we do all this stuff but apparently we pulled some samples out and it turns out to be mycotoxins and uh there's just a heavy load and so i would send in two batches before the batch in question um and then when i get the next batch in i would send the next batch in just just to be sure because it's like ten dollars a sample and so if i spent forty dollars and i got some really good data out of it and we ended up putting binders in the feed to absorb the mycotoxin poisons, and uh, here we go. We're right back to right, right back to gestating again. 
And wow, uh, that's yeah, man. What a what a great regimen to put in place there to really be monitoring your your feed and and uh, all the peripherals that come from that. That's, that's yeah. impressive. Well, and 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 on that, I I, I got to interrupt you here because there's one other thing related to that. There's a learning curve to all of this, and so I'm in my third year, and I really hit bottom for a minute, and I had a mill that wasn't milling really well, and come to find out their screen needed changed. You could probably stick your fist through this screen three times, and and so it, it, it sounds a little funny, but when you don't have a good grind, you're not getting good digestion, and I just didn't understand that. I assumed a pig eats food, and they digest it, and so... This winter, we did have a bit of an issue whenever we were milling and just going at it like that. And my pigs, through the cold of winter, I didn't double their feed intake by any means. So they basically ate the, the, the sows and such. Because the growers, they have a lot larger access to feed. But the sows and the replacement gilts, they get a specific ration, and I did up it. 30% for wintertime, but they weren't digesting probably 20 or 30 or 40% of what I was buying and feeding them. And so I had the vet out here twice and it's like, what's going on? My pigs are losing weight. They're losing weight. They're losing weight. And so if you're, honey, you're just feeding them to keep them warm. Just keep feeding them, feed them more and more. And so I started feeding them more and more and they maintained at that point, but they never gained And I'm feeding, I was feeding 10 or 12 pounds of sow per day. And I'm like, this is going to break the bank. What's going on? And so she looks at the feed and she goes, your grind size is horrible. There's inconsistencies. And so get a handle on that. And, and every little aspect has to be micromanaged. It's really interesting with pigs. Now, was that evidence, were you able to, to evidence that as well? Was the vet able to look at the uh, the fecal output and say, hey, there, there's a, a lack of absorption. There's a lot of, of byproduct here. Or was it just, just simply by their experience? Well, you know, in the, once the learning curve came full circle, yes. Uh, it's Oh, yeah, I've been seeing yellow corn in their poop. So it, it didn't register when you see it on the ground and you really didn't process it. It's like, well, maybe that's just the seat hole. Maybe, that, maybe they digested what they needed out of it. Because I've got old-timey farmers that tell me, well, I just give them cracked corn. Or I throw in... 20% whole corn to give them something to chew on. I've had farmers tell me, well, the sows will just pick all that back out once they've digested it. They pick out the, the whole corn again, and it, and it kind of inoculates their system. And you get you get some poop sifters. There's, there's a few sows that do that specifically. Um, it's interesting learning pig behavior. Um, I know I'm talking to mainly pig farmers here, but 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 you got to learn that pig behavior and what each sow does. And so whether it's a fresh plot or not, they're going to seek out that pile and they're going to sift through it. Um, but, uh, but, yeah, it was a learning curve that I just didn't realize until it really hit me and my veterinarian confirmed it and said, this is your issue, focus on this. So how was that conversation with your mill at that point? Is that uh, Were they receptive or did you actually go to another mill at that point or did they actually update their equipment? No, they updated their equipment. They did really good. Um, and they had heard me for about three or four or five weeks. I'm like, your feed keeps getting less ground and less ground. Can you tighten down the choke on it to where, the, where it feeds through the grinder slower? And that would help. But there's times when they're in a hurry and they would just push it right through and you'd end up with a pretty bad grind mix. Yet I did not understand that, that it was that drastic. So... Once my vet told me, I went to the mill, and he probably ordered a screen in a few days. And he got it in in a week. And um, in the meantime, I, as soon as she told me, I started taking my feed to a friend's farm and using his grinder, and we just made cornmeal out of it. I mean, they got really good grind out of it. And it wasn't excessive. It was still it was still in its range of being acceptable for the grind. I think, uh, was it 600 to 800 mesh? Is for for pigs. Don't quote me on that, but if you need to know, just check that out and research what size you need. And you can even buy a little screen, 600, 800 mesh screen, and you can sift your own corn and do your own test without asking the mill or asking somebody, and maybe you have access to adjust that. Hmm. Excellent. That's great advice. 
Well, all right. Well, um, obviously, with with this operation, uh, this isn't all personal consumption. It's not like the Rogers family is is eating all this pork. So you're obviously uh, you're selling commercially. Uh, give us a little bit of detail there. What, what do you what do you have as far as venues and outlets? Are you selling uh, cuts, holes, halves? You selling to restaurants? You selling wholesale? Give us an outlay there. Yes. Um, really, we do a lot of pre-sales. Um, we have a pretty good customer base that when it's time to harvest, we have a lot of hogs that are already pre-sold. And I take hogs to the butcher. I pick up those hogs at the butcher, and I just spend a full day. I go to the butcher in the morning, and on my way home, here's your half a pig, here's your half a pig, here's your whole pig. So it doesn't go into my freezers typically. Um, because that's a big expense having to keep all that meat frozen and you may have it for a month or two or three months and then you end up running a freezer sale and you're discounting your goods just to get rid of it. Um, so a lot of what we do is half hog, whole hog. Um, occasionally I'll break a pig down into like 25 or 50 or a hundred pound boxes. If that's just specifically what a customer requests. And I always do that at the butcher shop. I'll, I'll take a box and I'll put Betty's name on it or Frank's name on it and I'll put their 25 or 50 pounds in it. And, and every product has a per, a per pound label so I can just count, pack, and then put it in the ice chest. And then that's Betty, Frank, and Todd's over here in this town. And that's, that's Steve's over here. And I just work my way through that list as I go home and I end up at home in the end. It may be midnight, and I usually save those customers for last that love to stay up late because <laughs> some of them are friends, some of them are family. They're not all they're not all new customers, and so I know I know by heart quite a few of my customers. And uh, we're now getting in. Well, in, in the meantime, we also sold our excess hogs to other farmers. We were helping other farmers meet their quotas, and we were really probably 50% of our production, maybe even 75% of our production was piglet sales, 100, 150 pound pig sales. And a few times we would sell a trailer full of 250 or 300 or 320 pound hogs. But those were pretty much scheduled in advance. And we do a pretty good job of keeping that ahead of the curve. So we know, okay, I've got 20 hogs to sell and I may not be able to push all this in, in, in market weight packaged meat so let's run an advertisement on facebook or on on wherever and sell these hogs ahead of time to another farmer that needs more production and uh now i've kind of i'm taking that aspect out more and we're going more towards chefs at this point um i had a few out this last couple of weeks to come and look at the farm and what we do and um and obviously when you talk about doing all these pins and sows and rotating and we're not animal welfare approved because they require me to do quite a few things that I'm not one I'm not capable in having solid infrastructure huts that they require on my farm here at my house but there's certain aspects that I just don't want to participate in so these chefs have all these questions and why are you doing this and why are you doing that? And well, what's good about this and what's bad about this? And so I have to educate the chef, the customer, whether it's in the public or whatever, that what I do, not only does it fit my aspect, but it fits the sow's health and it fits the boar's health. And we're not running around with pigs overweight that can't breed or they don't know they're laying on pigs. They're, they're Sometimes in open areas, it just doesn't work out that way. And when you breed a progressive system and you need better and better and better breeding stock always, because that's really what a farmer should do is you're always trying to improve your herd. We can't always castrate at day three. It may be, day, it may be week two on occasions. And then we may have one or two boars a little bit later on that we just have to weed out. We don't usually castrate those. We try and sell them as boars. But... Once in a while, the sale doesn't work, and you can't harvest a boar. And so, so there's 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 times that a fifty pounder gets castrated, or it's just it's not specifically an allowable animal welfare proof scenario. So we have to cover that basis with all of our clients because we just want them to all know 
we're here for your health. We're here for the pig's health. We're here for everybody to be treated as best as possible, no matter what. And I think that's interesting. That's kind of the nuance of, of raising pigs on pasture. It, it, it does... It doesn't always fit the mold of, of large pig production, pork production. And so you find yourself uh, having to educate your potential customers and, and bring them up to speed with why you do what you do in your in your operation. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And everybody. I mean, from from the basic 10-pound purchase to, to a chef that's going to take 15 whole hogs a year or take a whole hog every week. Um, everybody's going to have questions. And if you're a good seller, if you want to be a good marketer, you need to be on your toes and have those answers and be educated to provide them on the snap of a finger and look like you know what you're talking about and, and actually do. I mean, you, you got to look at it and you got to play the part and walk the talk, walk the walk and talk the talk. <laughs> Yeah, and I think I think people pick up on your customers pick up if you've got passion, if you've got drive, and, and you're expressing that when you're you're talking to your customers or you're doing quote unquote the hard sell. Uh, if you express passion, express express knowledge of your product, then I, I think that resonates with people and they pick up on that. Absolutely, yeah they they really they really get they glean on that they really grab that and they run with it because they want to know that that farmer knows the pig, knows the pig behavior, knows what that pig needs and all the way to harvest. They want they they want you to know what's going on in the butcher shop. They want you to know from the piglet being born to, con- to conception to birth to harvest. And then now we're getting into the harvest stuff and uh so and and I I've, I've got the harvest information down really well, but now we're morphing into cured meats and, and specialty cuts and seam butchery and um, it's just a growth process that we have to go through as a producer. I'm glad you brought that up. That's a great segue. So let, let's talk briefly about about your processor options. Um, and I know, um, again, a lot of us listening probably don't have the um, as many options as maybe you run into. I know here in West Virginia, we are very limited on on uh, good processors. But how did you find your processor? Are you, have you had to go through several? And what about all the value-added services just offered there? Is that the processor bringing them, or are you having to ask them for it? It's a little bit of both. Um, obviously, the processor hopefully brings the skill set. Um, it It's a give and take. You know, you, you kind of have to take it with a grain of salt or sugar, whatever you really think you need. <laughs> because uh, I've got... We do have four processors within an almost reasonable reach. Um, I have a processor that's an hour and 40 minutes away, but they stay booked almost four months in advance. Um, I have a processor that's two hours away that's probably a month in advance, and I have a processor two and a half hours away, and I'm not sure of his availability at this point. And uh, I have another processor about four, four and a half hours away, and kind of interesting I, I gave you all those perimeters yet i still drive that four hour um the when you find when you find a, a gym you really try and hold on to it and, and use that to your advantage and they're smoked products and they're cured products with a butcher that's just a make it or break it with me now um last thing you want to do is produce all your bacon and all your hams and everything, and it has a bland taste or a not good smoke flavor. And maybe you can always work with that processor and say, hey, we need a little more smoke in that, or we need a stronger cure. Or um, there are like nitrates, for example. You can ask the butcher to kick it up a notch if you want 0.2 or 0.3 or 0.5 in the lower limit. That may not be a legal limit. I'm, I don't mean to be quoted on the lower limit. But what I'm saying is if you want to notch it up a little and make it a little more salty flavor. And uh, if you want the more smoke, you got to talk to that butcher and really work it out. Um, I've had, gosh, I've had issues to not name a single butcher. I've had issues within cutting all the fat cap off of my loins when I need a half inch to an inch. I've had issues of sausages having, I'd say, 60 or 70% fat put in. They just chunked all the fat in one time, and it, I still have it in the freezer, guys. I mean, for almost a year now it's just snow white sausage and uh um so 
there, there's a lost product right there. I probably lost a good whole whole hog worth of sausage that's just hanging out that I won't even eat. And uh, then you have some bad genetics occasionally, and it's like, well, that loin's real light, and it cooks up dry, and I'm not passing that on to a customer. And so I'll take that out of package, and I'll grind it myself and eat it at home. It, it's whatever. But uh, back to the processor, that smoke cure, that all of that, you know, you, you're part of that team and sometimes they want to debone your butts and you really wanted them whole or bone in at least and just cut in half or it's never going to be perfect i've i've never went to a butcher and got everything i've asked for and i just i go there and i assume that it won't be perfect and i'm happy with it it's just we work with what we've got and you end up with high school workers that are not educated and skilled workers and so they get used to cutting a half-inch loin or a, a one-inch a chop, I mean. Or um, you may end up with one inches instead of half or, or three-quarters instead of one. Or Rarely do they go overboard. You're not going to get butterflied or tomahawks if you don't ask for it. But uh, <laughs> but uh, I, I've had trouble getting tomahawks at times when I ask for them or hmm. um, just some specialty things. Uh, one time we ended up with apple bratwursts, but yeah, apple brats, which was supposed to be breakfast sausage, but they fermented it. Never would have had it that way, but it was amazing. So now I got a new yeah, product. Go. I got a new product. Yeah, that was so cool. Um, so that was a little, that was a little gem out of, out of a mistake. It was like, why do I have cased bratwursts? These are great. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. And, and, and you, you make a good point there and, and, uh, I think that's something we need to underscore is, is that's a, a relationship. There's a, there's a partnership there with your processor. Uh, I know from our perspective as, as guys that you know, guys and gals that are working our butts off, raising our hogs, we've put all this into it. And now when it's time to, to finish off the product, we have to turn around and give all that to a processor and it's now in his or her hands to, to finish your product. Well, and I think if, uh, I love your attitude of saying, I'm always going to expect an issue coming back. And, uh, you know, to err as human. And if you allow your processor to make some of those mistakes, again, address them, say, hey, hey, maybe we could do better next time. Uh, then I've discovered the same thing. When you run into issues, uh, don't make a big deal of it. Don't burn the place down. Don't don't burn that bridge. Uh, yeah. And usually uh, they'll meet you in the middle somewhere. Uh, I had the one situation where a processor... He had listeria in his uh, smoker, so I lost 18 hams, lost about 200 pounds of bacon. It was it was just a real nightmare. Uh, oh, but we my sat goodness. and talked about. It. Yeah, when we sat and talked about it, he reimbursed me my retail price of everything. So I actually came out on top because I probably wouldn't have sold everything at that point. And sure. he reimbursed me the whole thing. And it, it really was because he said, hey, man, you didn't come in. You didn't lose your mind. You weren't kicking and screaming. He, he, he said, we sat down and we talked it through. So uh, when my processing bill came due, I, he hands me the invoice and hands me a couple hundred dollars on top of it. So <laughs> I, yeah. I made out pretty good in that situation. Well, that's good. I, I'm so glad that that turned out that way. And uh, and I, I have to say that I've only met one processor that just wasn't willing to budge on the project that, that I had an issue with. And but everyone else in every instance that I've had, you know, there was a give and take system. Um, for example, I had, I had sausage that just didn't work out right. And so they had to rework it and they actually brought it to me. And, uh, um, I had a couple boxes left in the freezer at one point that they just didn't get to me and two and a half hours away. Well, Mr. Rogers will bring it to you. Um, you know, it's a box of hem hawks. I, I really appreciate it. You know, there's, just a couple hundred dollars worth of product out of 20 hogs. I mean, it was a little more than just ham hogs, but uh, they brought it to me. It was amazing. Uh, so sometimes yeah, they go above and beyond. Way. They really do. Absolutely. Well, all right. Well, I, obviously, Brian, man, I could talk to you for hours here, but I, I don't want to take up uh, take up your entire night. But let's, um, if you don't mind, let's let's wrap up with a question here. What is your favorite part or your best experience with raising pigs on pasture? Gosh, you know, really just walking out and waking up and seeing my pigs and they jump up and they say hi every morning and you know they're happy that where they're at. And, you know, unless it's just raining and a horrible, gloomy day, those pigs are just ecstatic. And, uh, it, that look on their face, because they do, they give you a good expression. And uh, 
I absolutely love the farrowing aspects of things. I love to be out there, even if it's in a sense pointless. I love to be out there late at night, midnight, two in the morning under the stars, hanging out with the mama Sal while she farrows, and I know she's good. I'm not in bed, tucked away, asleep and warm. I'm out enjoying the stars and the fresh night air, and that 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 really keeps me going. I really, I really love doing that. Awesome, love it. Yeah, there's nothing like being outside. That's that's what we live for. Absolutely. Well, for everyone that's been listening and and they want to find out more information about your uh, your operation there, where can we find you online? Um, we have a Facebook page, Berkshire Prime Pork. Um, we will be doing a, a new name at some point. We're we're morphing into a new project, but uh, we're st- our program will still be there. Um, right now, we're at BerkshirePrimePort.com. Uh, you can always reach me to my phone number. Um, it's all it's on uh, Facebook. It's on the website as well. Um, and uh, our presence is it's out there. We're we're uh, just outside of Hot Springs, Arkansas, and uh, we do attend the Hot Springs Farmers Market. And anyone that wants to learn or do anything or teach me something, goodness, I'm an open I'm an open book and I'm an open ear. I love to learn. That's all there is to it. I just love it. But uh, thank you so much, Troy, for having me today. I really appreciate it. Oh, absolutely. It sounds like we could all learn quite a bit from you. I'm really excited to uh, to share this and obviously get feedback and, and just talk to other farmers out there. Well, I appreciate you coming on, Brian. Again, I hope you have a great evening, and uh, we thank you for your time. Thank you, sir. Y'all have a good night. Thank you. Wow. What a great first interview. I hope you all appreciated and enjoyed that conversation with Brian as much as I did. Be sure to check out Brian's setup. I will have all the details in the show notes. Also, join us in about two weeks as we release episode number two, an interview with Lindsay Colazar, who is raising pigs on pasture near the Jersey Shore. I asked her for pigs all had accents, but we'll get into that next. All right. Take care, everybody. We hope you have enjoyed this episode of the Pastured Pig Podcast. To learn more about our podcast or to submit topics or recommend guests for future episodes, visit redtoolhouse.com.